proving every claim that he is who he says he is. And because of that, that confirming resurrection, we know that every single need that we have not only can be met in Christ, but will be met according to his will for those who choose to follow him. But it gets even better than that. Because it's not just as if he's hanging around in heaven, waiting to hear from us, hoping that we'll make contact to let him know how we're doing or what our needs are. No, he's in fact actively advocating for those who call him Lord. He's provided for our every need even before we ask or realize that there even is a need. And I want you to know this morning, in truth, I'm supposed to tell you today that if you're a follower of Christ, then you can be assured that he is actively and intimately advocating on your behalf to the Father. He's working for you because of his great love and concern for every single detail of your life. Jesus is many things, and one of his attributes, one of the roles that he fulfills as our risen Savior is that of the Advocate. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to explore what that means and how his role as Advocate plays out in our lives, because I believe that once we realize and accept the truth about him as our Advocate, that will cause us to think differently and to pray differently and to hope Differently, Because once we grasp the understanding of the power that is not only at work within us, but the ongoing work being done on our behalf, we will live with a new confidence. That same confidence that caused the Apostle Paul to boldly say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And just to establish the fact that I'm not making all of this up, let's turn to 1 John chapter 1. And we'll read a few verses together because it is vital to understand, to understanding the strength of our position in this world as followers of Christ, the position of authority and strength that we wield with Jesus as our advocate. Okay? 1 John 1, starting on verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning. Well, let's just pause there. Let's establish that John is talking about Jesus Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning. That is to say, Jesus Christ, who we know was from the beginning. Let's continue. He says, which we have heard. Remember, John was one of the original 12 disciples. When he says, which we have heard, he says that because he's heard Jesus firsthand. Which we've seen with our eyes. Again, John was a witness to the life of Christ. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Remember Luke 24, 39. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he approached his disciples who were doubting that he was even real. And Jesus said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, let's continue. He says, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, so in other words, John is saying I'm writing all of this to you. Based on the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. It's all true. Because he's alive and well. 
And I know it because I saw him and heard him and touched him. I was with him after he rose from the grave. Okay, John isn't basing his writing here on some religious conviction or big idea that he has about the future. He's saying that what I'm about to tell you is based on a personal relationship that I have with the Son of God and what he has told me to tell you. This is heady stuff. And it's very visceral for John because it's based on personal experience with Christ. That's precisely why personal testimonies are so powerful when we share them with others because we're not simply relating some clever doctrine or interesting theology. We're telling a story about something that has actually happened to us. And that can be very powerful. And that's what John is doing here, all right? And it's commonly held in scholarship that John was writing to Gnostics in this letter, members, members of the church being influenced by Gnostic doctrines. Okay, Gnostics are those who uh, propagate, they promote an understanding of salvation based on esoteric knowledge. It's an, uh, an obscure notion that redemption comes when we affirm a divine light that is already within the human soul rather than through repentance uh, from sin and faith in Christ. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or knowledge of spiritual mysteries. And these Gnostics were hijacking some of the concepts of Christianity and intermixing them with their own ideas about salvation. And they were then leading a lot of people away from the church and the true knowledge of Christ. And so John is stating clearly here, he says, listen, what I'm about to tell you isn't based on some grand idea that I came up with. Like what the Gnostics are doing. No, what I'm telling you is firsthand information because I was there. I saw, I heard, I touched, I experienced Jesus Christ personally. And this is what he says. Okay, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. That would be in clear contrast with the Gnostic idea of this inherent divine light within us apart from God. And in Him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Okay, so in other words, hey, you're all screwed up, fellas. You claim to be walking in the light, but you're not. You're actually walking in darkness. You say that you have no sin because you have this inner light, but I'm here to tell you you're wrong. In fact, you're full of sin and you're, you're bumping around your way in the darkness. And remember, these are church members, Christians that John is writing to who are being led astray by false doctrine, okay? And then in his very next breath, the very next verse or two, chapter 2, you can hear the love that John has for the church. You can hear his heart's cry for those Christians, those church members who've gone astray, led away by false teaching, and instead of castigating them, he says one of the most reassuring, loving, comforting, hopeful statements to every Christian everywhere. Chapter 2, he says, My little children, 
This is a pastor's heart who loves and longs for the best for his congregation. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And here comes one of the most encouraging and hopeful statements in all of the Bible. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In these two short verses, John paints one of the most amazing and powerful pictures of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. And we should all, every one of us, burn that image into our minds permanently. The picture of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who conquered sin and death and hell. The King of all kings advocating on our behalf before the Father. What an image. The word advocate in chapter 2, verse 1, is the Greek word parakletos. And it means, uh, literally describes an attorney or a, a lawyer. Someone who represents you before the judge. There are probably many attorneys in heaven today. Although I know some people might debate that. But as John MacArthur says, there's only one that is practicing. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. So imagine that you've been accused of a crime and put on trial. And your life is hanging in the balance. Would you rather have the public defender, you know, the guy who's getting paid whatever tax dollars that the government gives him to be your advocate? Or the rock star attorney who always wins and can guarantee that you're found innocent of the crime? Of course you want the best attorney. The best advocate that you can get. And that is Jesus Christ. Because even though we are guilty of the crime, he can guarantee that we're declared innocent. And set free because of the work that he's already done for us. And as our ongoing representation throughout this life, he continues to advocate for us before the Father. Jesus is many things. Not the least of which is the one who represents us before the Father. He is our advocate. That is an incredible truth to grasp. And one that we need to grasp if we're to truly understand our position as Christians in this world and the hope that we have in him even when we sin. Because he, the king of kings, is advocating on your behalf. Thank you, Jesus. Not only did he die for our sins, but even now when we mess everything up, he represents us before the Father and he has the clout, the authority... And the legitimacy to do that because of his atoning death on the cross that covered all of our sins. You know, wow. I know I don't deserve that, but I'll take it every time. What a gift that he is and that he continues to give us as he advocates on our behalf. And so over the next few weeks, I just want to look at how exactly Jesus advocates for us. What does that really look like? And as we move forward with these messages, my hope is that you'll see and fully realize that what Jesus did for us is more than a one-time event. He didn't simply come to earth to live and die and be resurrected. And now he's you know, kicked back in heaven, drinking a big glass of sweet tea, waiting for the trumpet to sound so he can have something else to do. No, he is in fact actively and intimately working on your behalf 
continuously so that you may succeed in this life to his glory and to your complete fulfillment in him okay so we're going to go back and look at the the book of luke where we've been the last few weeks for our main text then today and look at how jesus advocates for us and this first sermon will focus on him as our intercessor all right jesus intercedes for us in prayer he prays for you continuously i hope you know that Let's turn to Luke chapter 22 and we'll start on verse 24. And as you're turning there, let me just set the scene. Particularly for anyone who may not have been here last week. Jesus is in a room here, in a house inside the great city of Jerusalem. He's with his disciples, his closest friends. They've they've just shared a very intimate, very solemn Passover meal together. And Jesus washes their feet, which is in and of itself an incredulous act. And after feasting on all of this rich food and wine together, Jesus, in a profound act of symbolism and love, tells his disciples as they take the bread and wine together to remember him. And in that powerfully prophetic moment, Jesus reminds them of who he is and the fact that he's about to be betrayed and beaten and tortured and killed for them. And last week we shared in that meal with him and his disciples the, and the heaviness and the holiness of that moment must have been so palpable. And then just as the sacred moment at the end of the meal was drawing to a close, we see the disciples begin to talk amongst themselves. And what do they do? What do they say? How do they respond to the love that Jesus has just shown them? Washing their feet and teaching them about humility and service and then sharing this beautiful meal with them. How do they respond? Let's read verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Wow. Are you kidding me? Good job, fellas. You really know how to capture the essence of the moment at that critical hour at the very moment that Jesus needed his best men to be totally focused on the task at hand he's just explained through teaching and by example how they're to be loyal to one another and serve one another in humility out of deference for each other and the moment that Jesus stops talking his disciples start to fight about who's the greatest This is the ugly face of pride staring back at a holy God. They're elevating themselves one moment after Jesus has just shown them the very opposite way to behave. You know, we humans are so fragile when it comes to self-perception that we feel the need to constantly prop ourselves up in front of each other. And among other things, it highlights our great need For an advocate before the Father. Can't you just hear Jesus sometimes? You know, in his presence, I know. I know they're stubborn and full of themselves. I know they're selfish and unworthy. I know they've messed up again, that's right. But I love them. As you love me and love them. And I've carried their sin and selfishness. And their pride and insecurity. And they've been washed clean by my blood. Jesus, so full of love for us and patience with us, that he intercedes on our behalf. So what does he do next here in the story? As they argue amongst themselves about who is greater, 
Well, instead of throwing up his hands and walking away in disgust, he continues to teach them. Verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, hey guys, cool your jets and pay attention. I've come to serve, and so it is with you. You're here to serve one another, not rule over one another. Jesus says, just as membership in the kingdom is the opposite of what the world thinks, so too greatness in the kingdom is also opposite of what the world thinks. And the disciples have fallen prey to thinking like the world. They, they view greatness in the same light as the Gentiles. Okay, And in conjunction with the, the Jews' uh, messianic expectations at the time of a political liberator, a great takeover. The disciples are still dreaming of status and honor and power because they're close to the king. Probably recalling the Maccabean revolt. Less than 200 years old, uh, earlier, the Jews revolted against the Greeks and the other Hellenistic Jews. And, and they won a great victory after six or seven hard-fought years of guerrilla warfare over the Greeks. Who forbade the Mosaic law and Jewish worship of any kind. So this was a great point of pride for the Jews as they were able to come in and, and have victory and cleanse the temple and reinstate Jewish worship there. So the disciples, like most Jews, they knew all of this really well and probably had high hopes of an, in, uh, an imminent takeover, a spectacular takeover, much like the victory in the Maccabean revolt. But Jesus says, not so. This is different. If you want to be the greatest... In my kingdom, you will have to become like the youngest, which is to say, one who possesses the least claim to rule over anyone. However, in the end, Jesus says you will be rewarded because of your faithfulness. And then he says something very interesting. And it highlights the ongoing activity behind the scenes, that which is going on all the time in the spirit realm that you know we're not always privy to. Jesus says in verse 31... Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And it's common when we read this verse to think that Jesus is just speaking to Peter here. But he's not. He's actually talking to all of them. The word you in this verse both times is the Greek word humas, which is plural. It refers to all the whole group of disciples. So in other words, Jesus is saying, Simon, Satan has sought to shake all of you. Violently, just as one shakes wheat in order that you may fall from the faith, just as the wheat falls from the chaff. Jesus wants them to know that the enemy is gunning for them, just as he is for Christ's followers today. But, but they, and consequently we, need not fear because of the next verse. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, I, Jesus, am praying for you. Okay? Look, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in the heavenly realm, in the spirit realm, that we don't always know about. And so we're going to point out a couple of truths here. 
that may help us understand a little better what it means when we say that Jesus is our advocate, our intercessor. But first, I just want to preface these two points of our outline today by qualifying that Satan has no power to act outside of what God allows. And we need to understand that with confidence. All right, our enemy has dedicated his existence to destroying lives, and he's active in that pursuit. We see that here uh, with the disciples. We see it with Job. When Satan came before God and was only permitted to afflict Job to the extent that God allowed. Of course, we see it in the temptation of Jesus himself, 40 days in the wilderness. We see it in Judas's life in Luke 22, 3, which says Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. All right, our enemy is constantly active. However, he is not able ever to pull a fast one on God. He never sneaks up on God because he can only act within the boundaries afforded to him by our Father in heaven. Judas, Judas's betrayal was prophesied hundreds of years before it occurred in Zechariah 11, 12 and 13 and Psalm 41, 9. Psalm 55, 12 through 14. Okay, God knew before he created the earth that Judas would betray Jesus because God is sovereign and he used Judas's betrayal to accomplish his purposes for our benefit. And God is still sovereign today. In fact, he's sovereign over all of time. So as it has always been true, it is true today that Satan only acts as he is permitted to. And through that, believers are sometimes tested. Sometimes we're allowed to walk through trials and hardship, to be sure. But through it all, God is sovereign. And His purposes are accomplished in us as we are complicit with His will. As we allow ourselves to be taught and strengthened in Him, even as we endure hardships and tests in our lives. I've had people, friends, go through unbelievable struggles. But His purposes are revealed and fulfilled in us. As we follow him, Satan has no power to act outside of what God allows. Let that comfort you in your own time of struggle. Our God never permits the enemy to run unbounded through our lives. Okay, the devil's on a leash and God is never waiting to find out what's going to happen next. Because he's sovereign over all. Okay? And a big part of the reason that the devil is limited in what he can do is because Jesus is actively praying for us. He's advocating for us through intercessory prayer constantly. Author and scholar uh, Michael Wilcox says, When the Son prays to the Father, a power is released which checks all Satan's demands. I love that. The Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans 8, 31 through 34. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's us. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is indeed interceding for us. Let that comfort you. Let that, you know, salve the wounds and stay the fears that creep into our lives when we least expect it. 
And of course, it's a nice thought to consider Jesus praying to the Father for us. But in those times when the enemy is violently shaking your world, that should be far more than a nice thought. The fact that Jesus is praying for you should be the cornerstone of your confidence that come hell or high water when the storms of life are battering your joy and your peace, rocking your foundations, you can stand without fear and believe without hesitation that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This isn't merely an an exceptionally pious priest that we're talking about praying on your behalf. This is the high priest to whom there is no equal. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, referring to Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, no matter what's going on in your life today, you can know with confidence because it's plainly spelled out in his word that God not only hears your prayers, your petitions, your requests, but Jesus himself is interceding for you. He's praying for you on your behalf so that your requests, your needs, your concerns are absolutely being brought before the Father by Jesus Christ himself. He is our high priest. The next verse in Hebrews says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7.26 The high priest's job was to make atonement in the presence of the Father for the people. Except there was only so much the human priest could accomplish by sacrificing an animal. So Jesus became our high priest, the one who's able to work out what, all things together for our good, Romans 8.28. And we don't have time to read it today, but there's a tremendous example of Jesus praying for his followers in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26, where Jesus petitions the Father on the behalf of the disciples, and you can hear his heart's cry in that prayer, his desire for them to be taken care of and to be blessed. In fact, let's... Let's just read four or five verses. I can't stand not to. It's so good. We'll start on verse 9. Okay, this is Jesus praying for his followers. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled, that is Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Can you hear the passion in his voice? For those who follow him, he prays for our strength, our faith, our protection, our unity, for us to be full of joy. And we know that this prayer not only applies to those early disciples, but to us also. Because in verse 20, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. 
He loves you. He loves you. And he's praying for you constantly. That is no trivial thing. And there are not only consequences positively to his intercession, those outcomes to our earthly and eternal benefit. But there is a requirement for us subsequent to his intercession for us. And that is we must actively be praying for one another. Let's go back to Luke chapter 22 and we'll finish our text. Read verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus told them repeatedly to pray and notice that the reason they were sleeping instead of praying was not because they were lazy. It says they were sleeping for sorrow. They were mentally and emotionally spent. This was almost more than they could handle and yet they were still required to pray. And not only for themselves as individuals, but this command to pray was for each other. It was meant to be in support of Jesus as well. As spent as they were, worn out with grief, they were commanded to pray. In fact, we're all commanded to pray for one another. James 5.16 Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Ephesians 6.18 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The word supplication there in the, the Greek is deesis. It means every request, every need expressed from men to God. 1 Timothy 2.1 First of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Colossians 1.9 It's just Paul writing to the Colossian Christians. And so from the day we heard, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And there's plenty more scripture that makes this very clear. We're commanded to actively pray for one another. We've already read that Jesus prays for us and that he personally brings our requests to the Father. So think about it this way. Every time you pray for yourself, your requests are brought before the Father by Jesus himself. And then every time someone else prays for you, their requests for you are brought before the Father by Jesus himself. That's why James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Because our requests, our prayers are constantly being brought directly to the Father by Jesus himself. And think about that for a moment. When my mother was in a coma... In the hospital a few years ago, there were hundreds and hundreds of people, probably thousands of people, praying for her all around the world. Jesus himself was taking every single prayer from every one of those people, at least those 
who were in right standing with God and presenting them directly to the Father Himself. Our God in heaven was being inundated with requests for my mother's healing, prayers for her, are constantly being put before Him. Do you think He ignores that? Of course not. He hears our prayers and He answers. Listen, when I'm in great need, I want as many people praying for me as possible. I understand that some people are naturally more private about their business than others, and I do respect that, but at what point do we let go of a measure of our pride and privacy for the sake of bombarding heaven with a flood of prayers made on your behalf, taken directly to the Father by Jesus Himself? This is why we have prayer groups at church. This is why we circulate prayer requests to those groups when you ask for that. It isn't just so that you can feel better knowing that there are people feeling sorry for you. It isn't for the hope that in that group there might be someone who will understand what you're going through because misery loves company, right? No. The reason that we pray for one another in mass is because every one of those prayers is brought before the Father by Jesus Himself. And there is power in that because the Father loves you. And when His children are flooding Him with requests for someone over and over and over again, He listens and He responds. Of course, that isn't to say that he doesn't listen to a single prayer, a lone voice crying out for help. He certainly does. But his design is for us to be praying for one another, even as we pray for ourselves. Because why? Because we're a body. We're far stronger together than we are alone. The great book of wisdom in here, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, it sums it up pretty well. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's pretty clear. We're better together than we are alone. It's God's design for us because together we make up the body of Christ. And although I've never understood this, I've literally had Christians facing great struggles when I've asked them if I could pray for them, refuse and tell me no. I had a guy not too long ago who was going in for a biopsy in a potentially life-threatening situation say to me when I asked him if I could pray for him, he said, no thanks, I'm taking care of that myself. He was already talking about it to me and the others at the time, so it wasn't even a, a privacy issue. He just wasn't interested in having us pray for him. Now, I don't get that unless it's an issue of that man not really understanding the power and efficacy of being prayed for by a plurality of saints. There are few things in this life as powerful as that. That's why anytime we pray for one another in these altars, that I ask for others to come pray with me. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So please, don't ever underestimate the strength and effectiveness of other Christians praying for you. In fact, I wonder how different our lives would look 
if everyone in this church committed to praying for everyone else in this church every week. We're working on a, a directory with names and pictures of all of you, all of our regular attenders. What if you were to take a percentage of those people in that directory and pray for them on Monday? And then on Tuesday, you prayed for the next group. And, and on Wednesday, down the list and so on. Until you prayed through the entire list every week. Would it change our lives? Our job situations? Our health? Our relationships? Would it change our needs? Would it change our relationship with Him? I guarantee it would. Just imagine your name being brought before the Father by Jesus Himself over and over and over and over again. Constantly before Him. By other believers praying for you day after day after day after day. You can't tell me that wouldn't affect your life for the good. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I want you to know, your pastor is praying for you. I prayed for you from 5 o'clock this morning till 7 o'clock this morning. I prayed for every one of you by name. I hope you're praying for me and my family. One of my greatest desires is that we would all be praying for one another Every day. What would happen if a hundred people, if 50 people, if 20 people were praying for you every single day? Your life would change. So I'm asking you, would you consider it? Would you commit to it? Even when you're emotionally and mentally drained, even when you face troubles of your own, even when you're really, really busy, what if we made praying for one another a part of our everyday routine, a priority, no matter what? That is the heart of Christ. That is intercession. And the change in our lives and in our church would be profound. Let's pray. Jeannie.